Well, I think I noted right at the very beginning of our time together this morning that we are coming to the end of a series that we've entitled God's Unchanging Love, a study in the book of, of Malachi. And I want to encourage you either to turn in your copy of God's Word or in your bulletin on page 8 to Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. You can't say this every time that you come to an end of a series, but we're not only coming to the end of a series, we're not only coming to the end of a book of the Bible, but we're coming to the end of the Old Testament today. These are the very final words which are spoken through the prophet Malachi until the beginning of the New Testament in the book of Matthew. I know in your Bible it's just, you know, turn one page over and you're into uh, the gospel of Matthew, but there were as the scholars have noted, 400 years of, of silence um, after the close of the book of Malachi before the, the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ, which we'll be celebrating here very soon at Cornerstone before the beginning of the book of Matthew. And so in some sense, you're, you're hearing in these six verses of Malachi chapter 4 something of a summary of the whole of the emphasis of the Old Testament, as you would anticipate God as a, a, a perfect author, one who knows exactly what it is that we need to hear, he comes to the very end of the Old Testament and he shares with us today from Malachi 4, 1 through 6, the importance of, of knowing and being reminded of the promises of God's Word, His call on our life through His commands and statutes, and he prepares us for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ by grace. All of these things he teaches us and much more as he embarks on these final words in the book of Malachi and the book of the whole of the Old Testament. So with that in mind, let's approach now these words, Malachi chapter 4, picking up the reading in verse 1. This is God's word. For behold, the day is coming burning like an oven when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet." On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel, and behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word. And we thank you specifically for how it is you have spoken to us in the Old Testament. How it instructs us in your character. How it guides us according to your promises how it calls us into a life of obedience, leading us to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Father, would you, in the time that we share in this, the final verses of the Old Testament, would you give to us renewal of heart and life? Would you grant to us insight by the power of the Holy Spirit as He comes to bring illumination to this Word? And might we receive it as your people for the living and true and enduring and infallible and inerrant Word that it is? Would you come and speak its living truth into our lives right now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, undoubtedly, some of you have already begun preparing for the big day. You know what I'm talking about, Thursday, Thursday, Thanksgiving Day. Some of you have already begun preparing. You've been to the grocery store, you've begun to collect your your ingredients and, and your spices, you're, you're anticipating all of what you will enjoy as you gather with friends and with family and with uh, those who are neighbors, as you uh, maybe even serve in the community around you, those who are in need. So many opportunities made available to us this coming Thursday for Thanksgiving Day. But one thing's for sure, it won't be as it is you would hope it would be without some preparation. Without some preparation. Uh, Much of life is preparation, you know. I like to make it a discipline to go and visit the groom just before he commits his vows on his wedding day. I love to go and speak to him within those, those 30 minutes before the ceremony and ask him, are you ready? Are you ready for what it is that you're about to do? And I love to hear the different responses that come out of grooms' mouths at that point. There's some of them who will say, I think so. And you can see something of a bit of a sweat on their brow. I actually like that answer. I like that answer because of its realism. Who is confident or sure of these things of which we enter into called marriage? Who can be so confident as to say, I am definitely ready? Well, a few grooms out there will say that. Those are the ones I'm worried about. (laughs) For they have no idea what it is that they're getting into. We all have preparations. We have work projects. We have job interviews. We have uh, exams and and tests. Uh, We have all kinds of need for preparation. And in all the preparations of life, I wonder if you have been preparing as the close of the New Testament encourages us today, to prepare for eternity, to prepare for the coming day of the Lord. Euripides, the great Greek playwright, said in one of his plays, time will reveal everything. It is a babbler. It will speak even when not asked. My dad sometimes would come to me, and I think with a kind of a, one of those wry grins just sort of poking at me, you know, whether it be a sermon, someone will tell me, are you ready for the sermon? And I'll say, well, time will tell. Time will tell. He would say that all the time. Are you ready for such and such? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, time will tell. It will reveal everything. It is a babbler. It will speak whether it is asked or not. It's really what Malachi is telling us today, that there is a day that is coming where all will be revealed. Are you ready for that day? 
Are you ready for that day? How do you know that you're ready for that day? What would it mean to prepare for that day? That's really what we're looking at today in Malachi 4, 1 through 6. And in light of that message of the final words of the Old Testament calling us into preparation for that day, I want to look at this text in just two ways with you. I want you to see that the day of the Lord is coming, therefore prepare for it. The day of the Lord is coming, therefore prepare for it. And then I want you to see that the day of the Lord has come, therefore rejoice in it. Therefore rejoice in it. The day of the Lord is coming, therefore prepare for it. And the day of the Lord has come, therefore rejoice in it. I want to start with the day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord is coming, therefore we must be a people who prepare for it. Now, now, throughout this text, remarkably so, this language of the day or the day of the Lord shows up no less than four times in these six verses. Notice how the text begins there in verse 1. For behold, the day of the Lord is coming, burning like an oven. And then later in that same verse, the day that is coming, that is the day of the Lord, shall set them ablaze. Verse 3, you shall tread down the wicked on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. And verse 5, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Four references in, in six verses. It's almost like Malachi is trying to get across a point. He's clearly trying to tell us something. He wants us to have in mind the day of the Lord. But of course, it's not just Malachi, it's the whole of the Old Testament and especially all of the prophetic uh, literature. Throughout all of the prophetic literature, we see this theme of the day of the Lord heavily emphasized. Joel 1.15 says, Alas, the day of the Lord is near. Amos 5.18 says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Zechariah 3.10, on that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Jeremiah 46.10, the day of the Lord comes with a vengeance. Zephaniah 1.14, the day of the Lord is near, the sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. Ezekiel 13.5, you have not gone up to the breaches or built a wall for Israel that it might stand in the day of of the Lord. Isaiah 4:2 In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. This is just a small representative sampling of uh, literally scores and scores of texts throughout the prophetic literature speaking of the theme of what Malachi calls here the great and awesome day of the Lord. Now the frequency and the vividness by which the prophets speak of the day of the Lord is meant to underscore its importance. It is critical, according to the prophetic literature, it is absolutely urgent for God's people to be anticipating and thus preparing for the coming day of the Lord. And if that is true, we must ask the question, what is the day of the Lord? 
What is the day of the Lord? Well, toward an answer to that question, I I want you to observe something very curiously here in Malachi's prophecy, but also in those quotations which I gave you, that small sampling of texts from the prophets. I want you to observe very curiously about the way the day of the Lord is described. Did you notice when I was reading those texts just a moment ago that sometimes the day of the Lord was spoken in hopeful, exuberant, and joyful terms? Did you notice that? It was described, for instance, as the day of the Lord is when the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. It's when a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and Jerusalem, or in our own text, it's a day when the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. At other times, you might have noticed in those uh, same texts that the day of the Lord was spoken of with terror and with dread. It is a day of vengeance, according to Jeremiah 46.10. A day that we would fear, woe is he who desires the day of the Lord. That the sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. Now how can we say that the day of the Lord is a day that is full of hope and at the same time full of dread and terror? How is this possible? You'll remember in June, June 6th of 1944, what we have come to know as D-Day, the Allied invasion of Europe took place, and that it would be 300 and, well, 36 days later, on May 8th, 1945, where we would receive the unconditional surrender of Nazi Germany, what we, we now refer to as VE Day, or Victory in Europe Day. By everyone's estimation, when they look at that moment in, in history of the courageous acts of more than 150,000 soldiers who uh, entered into those, uh, those beaches, American, Britain, and Canadian soldiers, from a historical standpoint, it's quite clear that it was Impossible to imagine that VE Day would ever happen without D-Day. And as we look back on D-Day, this great military achievement, it was, of course, a day full of terror, a day of tremendous dread, which would give birth to a day of tremendous hope and tremendous victory. The day of the Lord is not unlike this. The day of the Lord is not unlike this. For the day of the Lord refers to the time of the Messiah's coming. When the Lord of hosts will bring ultimate judgment and simultaneously bring ultimate restoration to the world. And how you experience that day depends on who you are. It depends on who you are. It depends on with whom you're aligned. Notice in Malachi chapter 4, verse 1, we're told that these evildoers, these who are arrogant on the day of the Lord, 
will burn as like an oven. That's what it will feel like for them. They will be set ablaze, according to the prophet Malachi, and nothing of them will remain. Notice no root, no future hope of growth, nor branch, any of the fruitfulness of their existence. All will be left, according to Malachi 4.3, is the ash that God's people will tread on underneath their feet. And yet that same day, for those who fear the name of the Lord, Malachi 4.2, it is for them the dawning of a brand new day. It is to them a sun rising in the east, a sun that is marked by righteousness, a sun that as it rises brings with it healing in its wings. What is the defeat of evildoers and and the arrogant of the world is to the righteous, those who fear the name of the Lord, the dawning of our everlasting hope, the world that we've longed for with the Savior in whom we've hoped in. Malachi knows his ancient Near East. Well, he's living there. He knows that in the cultures in which he is inhabited, there was iconography. Iconography that pictured the sun regularly with wings. Not just a fanciful image, you understand, not just a cartoonish image, kind of display, but a, an attempt to picture a phenomenon, a phenomenon that, that you and I experience when we see a glorious sunrise when we're on the beach. I have a particular memory at 16 years of age, sneaking out of the condo that we were in with a book in hand and my book light long before the dawn to go down to the beach, to sit there and read and to watch the sun rise. And I remember it. I remember the coolness. I remember the sound of the crashing waves. And I remember the first peak of the light of the dawn. And I remember watching the sun rise, so to speak, out of the ocean. This blazing disk of glory, which as it's on the horizon cascading across the waters in those first hints of light. What do you see? Well, you see a line, a line running to the east. It's bright and glorious. And a line running to the west that's bright and glorious. A line that runs in both directions that if you look closely, looks like the blazing disk has some wings. It looks as if what makes the sun rise is its wings. These rays of glory that chase the darkness away. That's the day of the Lord for the righteous. That's the day of the Lord for those who fear the name of the Lord. He says this day will be the day where ultimate healing will come. Where all of the sorrows and pains and sadnesses of this life will be no more. Where righteousness will rule and will will reign. Where, where, where no battle with sin will be had, no need for confession or repentance. We will be perfect even as our Savior is perfect. Indeed, we will see Him even as He is.
and we will experience, according to Malachi, an exuberant joy. Notice the imagery there. We will leap like calves out of the stall. As it were, we were broken free from that which restricted us and contained us from a world that had gone wrong and mad, now we as young calves with youthful exuberance, breaking forth from the stall, stamping out in the light of his righteous rays. This is the hope of the Christian, you see. This is what it means to live by the light of eternity, as the Puritans would put it. Now Malachi knows that For us to experience this joy, we have to be prepared. That's why he's a good prophet. It doesn't just simply tell us these eternal truths about our eternal destinies, but he instructs us in how it is that we are to respond. And not surprisingly, what does he tell us? Well, he tells us to go back and read our Bibles. What do I mean? Well, in Malachi's day, the Israelites didn't speak, you know, of the Old Testament, did they? That wasn't language that, that, you know, it's not old if you're in it. It's not the Old Testament. That's not how they would have viewed it. Instead, they spoke of the law and the prophets. That's how they spoke of the Old Testament. And Malachi does the same thing here. He says there in verse 4, here's how I want you to prepare for the day of the Lord. Remember my servant Moses and his law and his statutes. And all that I commanded him at Horeb, which is another word for Sinai, all that I commanded him at Mount Sinai for all of Israel. I want you to go back and I want you to remember, here's how to prepare for the day of the Lord. I want you to remember that I brought you out of Egypt. You were slaves. And I led you out with a righteous right hand. And I brought you through the the, the wilderness with signs and wonders to Mount Sinai. And as I did, I took Moses, your representative, up on the, the mountain for 40 days. And as he was there, he received from me the laws and the statutes and the rules which you will follow even unto this day. Go back and remember the story. Go back and lay hold of the promises. Go back and hear afresh the commands of which I have called you, that you would be a people who believe and obey, that you would follow from the words that I have given to you. He says, I want you to go back and remember, Moses. I want you to go back. Get this. At the very final words of the Old Testament, I want you to go back. I want you to start over. I want you to go back to the beginning pages of this whole book. And I want you to reread it and meditate on it and reflect on it. I want you to go deep into its laws and statutes and commands. I want you to peer into the mystery of all of those sacrifices which I have given to you. For in them is preparation for the day of the Lord. But I don't want you to stop with the law. I want you to go on and read the prophets. Why should we read the prophets? Because the prophets, well, they correct us. They rebuke us. They don't just tell us the way to go. They tell us how to recover when we've lost our way. And much of the Old Testament is a recovery of losing your way. Much of all of what we actually see in the Scriptures with regards to the people of Israel is losing their way and regaining it again by God's grace. That's undoubtedly part of the reason why he mentions even Elijah here. Moses and Elijah, Elijah, a representative prophet in the Old Testament, a prophet like no other prophet, a prophet who in many ways paced the same path as Moses himself. 
One who ended up in Mount Horeb. One who crossed the Jordan River and parted it. One who led the people of Israel as a people in exile. These two men, Moses and and Elijah, revealed to us, so to speak, the whole of the Old Testament. The law and the prophets. The way in which we should go and how to recover when we've lost our way. And he says, here's what I want you to do. Go back and reread your Bibles. Go back and look at all that I've told you. And then I want you to tell it to your children. Fathers, I want you to turn your hearts to the children. And I want the children's hearts to turn to the fathers. That's what I want to say. I want you to be concerned about the passing on of the faith. I want you to think in my covenant promises generationally that the faith which now abides with you as people wouldn't stop with you but would continue on in a time that you will not see, but in a time where my faithfulness will be revealed. That the hearts of fathers would turn to their children and that children's hearts would turn to their their fathers. It's impossible not to think of Deuteronomy 6, is it? In fact, I was tempted today to read Deuteronomy 6 to you because it's just so parallel of exactly what Malachi tells us here in Malachi 4. That the commandments of the Lord are rehearsed in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And that we are told that fathers should be teaching their sons in days to come when they ask, why do we do all of this? Why do, why do we go to church and walk through the same things every week? And he tells us, because once we were slaves in Egypt, and our God brought us out by a righteous right hand, and our God gave us instructions at Mount Sinai, to live before His faith in love and obedience, to tell the story of the faith to the next generation. I've given you Moses and I've given you Elijah that the hearts of the fathers might be turned to the children, the children might be turned to the fathers. You see, this is how you prepare for the day of the Lord. Read your Bible. Pray. Go to worship. Talk to your children. Tell others about the mysteries and wonders of God's promises and commands. Lest I come and strike the land with utter destruction. What a sad note. To end the whole of the Old Testament, we were doing so well. Didn't it just feel so great? Fathers turning to children, children turning to fathers. Read the Bible, lest I destroy you. Interestingly, the language there at the end of Malachi chapter 4 is the same language that's used in Joshua to describe what the people of Israel would do to the Canaanites. Utterly destroy them. Where no vestige is left. It's the language of the day of the Lord of those who don't believe in the Lord. No fruit, no branch, no root will be left. Everything will be destroyed. Do you know the people in whom Malachi is actually prophesying to? It'll be several hundred years before they fully see it, but the temple of which they are currently in will be utterly destroyed. And the Jews of that generation will ultimately be exiled yet again. 
It's a sobering note, isn't it? This is the coming of the day of the Lord. Are you prepared for it? But there's so much more in this text, isn't there? You see, the day of the Lord has come. There is something to rejoice in in this text. In fact, there is, there's deep reasons to rejoice in this, this text. If you've been curious a bit about Malachi's instructions here after speaking of Moses, and I, well, I started speaking about Elijah and Elijah's ministry and the law and the prophets, and I went back to the Old Testament. But if you're really paying attention, some of you are like, I don't know that it's actually saying that fully because it seems to me the text is looking futuristically. Indeed it is. Notice, remember assumes that you got to go back. But in verse 5, he says, Behold, I will send you, Elijah. Hmm. I will send you, Elijah. I'm not just talking about going and reading the law and the prophets. Yes, that's it. But I'm going to send Elijah to you. Now, if you remember Elijah, he didn't die like the rest of us. He went up in a whirlwind, a fiery chariot. What a way to go. Could it have been here that the people when in Malachi's day, as they heard that Elijah's coming, they would have been like, this is going to be amazing. I mean, I bet he's going to come in the way that he went. We're going to see this chariot of fire. He's going to come back from heaven. This is going to be remarkable. He's one of the very few people, one of two that we know of in the Old Testament, that don't die a normal death. In some ways, it would be understandable to go down that pathway, but no, Malachi doesn't mean that. As Malachi draws his prophecy, even for the Old Testament, to a close, he's actually not looking to a closing story. He's letting us know that there is, well, that this is not the end. In fact, he leaves us looking for more. He tells us at the end of this story, I want you to be looking for Elijah. I want you to go back and I want you to read about Elijah. Oh, yes. I want you to remember the law, but I want you to have your eyes peeled for Elijah. And interestingly, when we turn the page to the New Testament in the beginning of Mark's gospel, what do we find? That none other than Elijah shows up. His name is John the Baptist. That's why we read him earlier in the text. Remember, he dressed the same way as Elijah with camel's hair and leather belt. He had quite the fashion sense. A man who came with similar uh, dietary and eating habits with locusts and wild honey. Sounds delicious. A man who came with a mission to turn the hearts of fathers to children. What was the message of John the Baptist? Well, it was a message of repentance. What, what does it mean to repent? Well, in the Greek, the word literally means to change one's mind, to turn, to about face, to do a 180. Look for Elijah, for when he comes, he's going to talk about turning fathers towards their children and turning children towards their fathers, living a life of covenant promises from one generation to another, following the Lord in repentance. That's what he's going to do. He's going to prepare for what? He's going to prepare you for the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. The birth of Jesus. No, no one really saw that coming in quite that way, you see. The form of judgment that was coming in the day of the Lord was not really what anyone expected. 
For Jesus Christ came as a Savior. In His first coming, not to judge, but instead to be the one who would be judged. Jesus came as the fulfillment of all that Moses foretold and all that Elijah spoke of, which is why there on the Mount of Transfiguration, in Luke chapter 9, where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John in a place that feels a lot like Sinai, doesn't it? And Jesus shines before them like the dawning of a new day, like a son of righteousness with healing in his wings. And there on the mountain with him is none other than these two characters, Moses and Elijah. And, and remarkably, there in Luke chapter 9, you know what we're told? We're told fascinatingly that they're talking with one another. It's just fascinating to me. I don't know why I'm so fascinated by that, but I so want to be in on that conversation. And we are. We're actually told that Moses and Elijah, now these are men who knew something about leading God's people leading them out of bondage and into freedom. Both men led the people of Israel in just that way. And we're told that Moses and Elijah are talking to Jesus about his departure. About his departure. What is not immediately accessible in the English text is that word departure is the word exodus. They're talking to him about his exodus. Jesus is talking to Moses and Elijah, people who know something about exoduses, about his exodus, that he has come to lead a greater exodus. How do you prepare for the day of the Lord? Go read Moses. <laughs> and when you begin to turn the pages to the book of Matthew, you know what you see so wonderfully and beautifully is the pattern of a new lawgiver who's come. This, this Jesus of, of Nazareth who's going to go to Egypt, right, for protection, to escape Herod, and who's going to be brought out of Egypt through the waters of baptism. It sounds a lot like the Red Sea, actually. Into a wilderness temptation where he's there for how long? Forty days, that's right, yeah. And he goes from that wilderness where? To a mountain from where we get the Sermon on the Mount. And what does he talk about there? I can't remember. Oh, the law. The Ten Commandments. And Matthew is telling us this. There's a new Moses in town. A better Moses in town. Go back and read Moses, because if you read Moses and you follow Moses, you know what you'll learn? You'll learn about the one that I'm preparing for you, the Savior who is Jesus. For he comes as a better Moses. He comes as a better Elijah to lead a deeper exodus, not an exodus out of Egypt or an exodus that's out of Babylon. He's come to lead an exodus out of sin and death. And remarkably, on the day of his coming, the day of the Lord, he will indeed experience his own personal judgment day. That's why he comes. He will take on the charge of evildoers, his people, 
And he will be set ablaze and burned on the cross as if he was in an oven with the wrath of God towards our sin. He will experience his own terror and dread, his own D-Day, so to experience, in order that he might set in motion a V-Day for you and for me. He will experience his own dread and terror. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That we might experience the victory. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. How will you prepare for the day of the coming of the Lord? By knowing that Jesus, the one who has come, in the day of the Lord, has experienced judgment on your behalf and through forgiveness and His righteousness, when He comes back again, not to save but to judge, the fire will be to you like a blazing disk in the sky, the dawning of a new day, with the rays of righteousness extending as far as the curse is found bringing to you all the healing that your heart desires. Prepare for the day of the Lord. Rejoice, for the day of the Lord has come. Father in heaven, would you prepare us even this Thanksgiving week with joy everlasting for the Savior who is Christ the Lord who came in the day of the Lord and received the judgment for the people of the Lord. Prepare us for the day of His return by causing us to live deeply in the reality of His grace as the Savior of His people. Father, hear this prayer and answer it. In Jesus' name, Amen.